um, from 14 um, down to 29. So as we turn here, there, let's bow our heads in prayer. Lord, as we, we come to your word, oh Lord, we acknowledge that we need you. Lord, we need you both to speak. We need you to hear. So Lord, our prayer this morning, my prayer this morning, Lord, is that beyond the voice of a mere man, O oh Lord, um, each and every one of us here this morning, we hear you speak to us. Lord, you would cause your word to come alive in our hearts and in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. While we are at um, the portion of Mark, um, if you just take a glance um, at the preceding verses, you'll realize that um, this was just after Jesus' transfiguration um, up the mountainside, where he was with three disciples of his inner circle, we could say, um, James, Peter, and John. But now he's descended, um, and the situation here is quite different in a sense. It's um, a dramatic distinction between um, the glorious atmosphere of the mount, and here there is a chaotic um, scene below. So as we uh, look at these verses um, from 14 um, to 29, I have just about five uh, points that I want to uh, look at. Um, Don't be alarmed, it's not going to take so long. But the first one is describing the scene that that we see there. See, Mark gives us the picture of the scene. If you've read the Gospels, if you've read Mark, you will discover that what we see here in a sense is both common and unique. You see, it is common in the sense that there is a great crowd here. Mark says, and when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd. You see, a great crowd always gathered and sought after Jesus. Early in Mark chapter 2, uh, precisely, we read that the friends of the paralyzed man, that is the paralytic, had to go through the roof to bring him to Jesus while he preached because of the crowd in the house. In Mark 6, 33, there were many coming and going. And they, Jesus and his disciples, had no leisure even to eat. And in verse 34 of that Mark 6, we read that when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. And on this occasion, he fed about 5,000 of them. And later on in Mark chapter 8, verse 1, he fed 4,000. And so great crowds always sought Jesus. And today, great crowds still seek Jesus. For many reasons. And maybe you could ask yourself, for what reason are you seeking Christ? I don't know when um, the sermon was um, the advert was put on the group, and maybe on Facebook, you saw deliverance in Christ. And if you had seen the passage, um, you would have thought, well, maybe LPC has finally arrived. Um, it's time to cast out demons and devils. So many great crowds, in a sense, seek Jesus. The second normal thing about this scene is the scribes. These were part of the religious establishment of the day. And some of them, not all, were Pharisees. You see, the scribes devoted themselves to writing and studying scripture. And then they were particular, rather, about preserving their traditions. Great crowds saw Jesus 
for various reasons. The scribes came to Jesus to confront him, to argue, to dispute with him, to show him that he was wrong. And in Mark chapter 3, verse 22, they claimed that Jesus was demon-possessed. They hated him. Indeed, they saw him as a threat to them. And so the great crowd and the scribes here, as I said, they are normal. So when we see that the scribes were arguing with the disciples, it is not unique because they always wanted to argue. But the occasion that gave rise to their argument here is one that is different. It's one that is unique. You see, in the midst of all this that is going on, in the midst of the chaos, as Jesus approaches with his disciples, or with the three that he was with on the mountainside, he asks them a question in verse 16. What are you arguing about with them? And so from the scene that we see there, I want us to move next to the boy's condition that is described here. You see, the scribes remained silent. They didn't say anything. Probably they were not really concerned about the boy, but they were concerned about what the disciples had failed to do, as we'll go on to see. But someone in the crowd, a distressed father, Answer Jesus. You see, Matthew asked that he came up kneeling before Jesus. We see that in Matthew chapter 17, verse 14. And Luke also states that he begged Jesus, saying, Look at my son, for he is my only son. And what we see here is a horrible picture of great torment. We see in from verse 17 to 18 what those boys' condition is. So the father says that the spirit that torments the boy seizes him. He throws him down. Matthew includes that he's often thrown into the fire and water. That he fumes his mouth. He, he grinds his teeth. He becomes rigid. Luke adds that he cries. He is shattered. And if these are not enough, the spirit leaves him mute and deaf. You see, this is a terrifying situation. It is one that is similar to what is called um, epilepsy today, the medical condition. But we see here, if we notice that this is not described as a medical issue, but as a spiritual condition. But we have to pause and be careful here not to infer that every case of such um, epilepsy that we see today is one of demonic possession. The gospel shows us that both cases are real. There are medical issues, just as the one that I, I described to the children. And there are demonic possessions. That is real. Example in Mark 132. They brought to Jesus all who were sick or oppressed by demons. 
And you see, today there are, there are two extremes of demonic possession that we see. One is to see it absolutely everywhere. You know, so that maybe when you look around, maybe when you look under your nose, you see a demon. It's just everywhere. They're everywhere. And the other extreme is to see it nowhere. To deny the existence of such and to go on with your life. So the Bible tells us that these two extremes we must avoid. But here we see the height of the devil's activities. And this is similar to the one in Mark chapter 5 where another man was absolutely subdued and tormented that he lived in the tombs. And we're told that no chain could even bind him. The devil was destroying him just as the devil was destroying this boy. This is the devil's motivation. The devil's goal is to destroy and kill every image of God in mankind. And this child was trapped in that bondage. Again, we see that in this boy there is a tragic, dramatic illustration of humanity apart from God. So just as I was describing to the children, the Bible gives us the true diagnosis of who we are. The Bible tells you who you really are. Even if it's an uncomfortable truth to you. you know, but if you're going to read the Bible, if you're going to take it seriously, if you are going to follow along and understand what is described in the gospel record, so that by the time when we read in the letters, when we read in the epistles, when we read in Paul and Peter and John, we see the implications of what is described in the Gospels. So I just have one cross-reference for us. When we turn to Ephesians chapter 2, if you can, when we turn to that passage in Ephesians chapter 2, we see that the same picture of what this boy is dealing with here is the picture that Paul gives us of man's enslavement. You see, not all people are demon-possessed. But everyone is under the tyranny and control of evil. You see, that this boy's enslavement is a graphic illustration of what is true of the human condition. So Paul writes to, to the efficient believers. He speaks to those who have heard the gospel, who have heard the good news, who have believed it. And as a result, they have been included in Christ. He says that in verse 13 of chapter 1. He says, In him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, 
And so he goes on in chapter 2, and he tells them what they were before they came to Christ. He says that you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to walk. You were dead. If you can think about that a little bit, there are no degrees of deadness. When a doctor says a man is dead, he doesn't say he is partially dead. When the death certificate is signed and stamped, it says that you are dead. Well, he doesn't come and say you are a little dead. He doesn't come and say he's quite dead. Dead is dead. And this is man outside Christ. You are dead in your transgressions, breaking God's law and in your sins. And he says in which you used to live, past tense, because they have been made new. And he goes on to say, you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. So let's just state it simply, once again, as clearly as I can say. We are not all demon-possessed. But we are all under the power of dark forces of evil. Let me use the children as another illustration. And maybe when you are a child, you can, you can think about this. Growing up, or those of us here today who, who, who have children already, you tell your children, you are told growing up, don't tell lies. You know, you're told, don't be unkind. Don't cheat. Don't fight. Have you ever thought, why all these instructions? These are wonderful little children. These are little angels. There's no need for this kind of instruction. But of course there is. You see, you don't have to teach children to, to lie. You don't have to teach them to lie. You have to teach them to tell the truth. You don't have to teach children to lose their temper. You have to teach them how to control their temper. You don't have to teach children how to steal. You have to teach them how to only look after what is their own. And that is what comes natural to people. That is what comes natural to children. And that is what comes natural to each and every one of us. This is our condition apart from Christ. Everyone knows today that there is a problem in the world. We're happy to describe it in Political terms, we have to describe it in education terms if we can teach ourselves more. We have, we're happy to say, you know, in millions and billions of years, when we eventually evolved or evolved to this greater man. But the one condition we are not ready to admit 
is that we do what comes natural. And the Bible says we are not all demonic or, or, or demon possessed. But we are all under the tyranny of evil. And so maybe you thought um, we're here to, to do some casting and binding. No. I hope you see from this boy's condition that even if his condition was at the extreme, it is one that each and every one of us must contend with. And thirdly, we see from the sin and to the boy's condition, we see the disciples of failure. We see that in, in verse um, 18. And the, boy, the boy's father tells Jesus, I asked your disciples to cast it out. They were not able to. You see, the boy's father says that he brought him to Jesus first in verse 17. But Jesus was on the mountain. So he asked the disciples, well, if your master can do it's not here. Maybe you can do something. But they were unable. The disciples failed. And Jesus' reaction gives us a glimpse of his heart. You see, Jesus' reaction shows us a mixture of, of frustration and compassion. Here Jesus, he cries out, Oh, faithless generation! How long am I to be with you? Jesus is frustrated with not just the disciples, I believe, but also with the crowd and the scribes, because they are, they are included in that time, the generation. But you see, the, the result of the failure wasn't that they didn't try. The disciples had done their best. And maybe you have experienced this. You are so confident in something. Or maybe an exam. You think, you know, this course, I don't need to study it. I'm going to ace it. And so you walk into it not prepared. And you fail. The disciples were probably relying on past success. But they encountered gross disappointment and failure. It wasn't that they didn't try their best. Their problem was unbelief. That they had believed in themselves. They had done it in the past. He marks it. Jesus had sent them out. And they came back rejoicing. But in their unbelief, it showed that Jesus was absent in what they were doing. We can use it and think about the church and God's people today. The church today is very well equipped. We are more wealthy than the people of the past. We have 
access to the Bible and resources and instructions more than those of the past. Yet, we're often so powerless. Why? Is it because Christ is not present in a lot of what's See, yet in the, in the midst of Jesus' frustration, he cries out, how long am I to bear with you? We see Jesus' compassion and kindness. And he says, bring him to me. See, Jesus was in the midst of a faithless generation. He was rubbing shoulders with sinners. He had 12 disciples, 12 apostles who he had instructed. They had seen him perform miracles. Yet the best he could get out of them was faithlessness and unbelief. But yet Jesus was kind and compassionate and patient with them. But we sang earlier, our sins are many, his mercy is more. Although maybe when you you look at your true condition, again that could drive you to two extremes. To feel that you are so bad and sinful and you can't be saved. Or for some of us who do not see our condition or think we are so good, we do not need a savior. But whether you think yourself so good, whether you think yourself so sinful, there is a kind and patient and compassionate savior. That is Jesus. Fourthly, I have written here two collisions in a sense. Collision C-O-L-L-I-S-I-O-N-S. Verse 20 to verse 24. They bring the boy to, to Jesus. First, the collision of purity and evil. Verse 20 to 22. They brought the boy to Jesus, and when the Spirit saw him, immediately he convulsed the boy. What we, the picture of what we have here is the Spirit recognizes who Jesus is. Here there is, in a sense, a clash between darkness and light. And this is the natural reaction of the forces of darkness before the absolute purity of Christ. James write that even the demons believe and tremble. They tremble in the presence of Jesus. Earlier in the gospel, in Mark chapter 1, verse 22, when Jesus came to Capernaum, immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And while he was in the synagogue, an unclean, spirit, an unclean man came to him. And what did the Spirit cry out? 
What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? And the Spirit says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Again, in that Mark chapter 1, verse 32, that evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed. And in verse 34, he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. This is a further demonstration of the raging hatred the demonic realm had and has for Jesus. It converses the boy, it throws him on the ground and he fumes in the mouth. This is a real battle. And that is where our ultimate battle lies. The Bible says we do not battle against flesh and blood. But you see, the devil is a created being. Yes, he may be the ruler of the kingdom of the air. But he is in chains. And that chain is tied to the cross of Christ. We don't have an evil spirit who is equally powerful, you know, fighting against one that is equally good. No, God is the only self-existent being. The devil is a fallen angel. He has his hosts. The hosts invade the universe. They possess the mind of people. They engage in things, yes. That is the battle. But they bow in the presence and at the name of Jesus. See, now, if you think about this, nobody lives between darkness and light. No one is in semi-darkness or semi-light. No, by nature, we live in the dark. By nature, we live in rebellion. By nature, you are spiritually dead. The anti-God spirit, the, the hatred for God is everywhere. It possesses everyone. No one lives in a neutral zone. You are either in the darkness or you have been delivered into the light by Christ. So this boy had lived in that darkness since his childhood. And when that darkness comes in the presence of Christ, it trembles. See, I tried my best not to um, talk about many things we see on on the TV, um, faith healers and all that, but I probably should because many of us are from Africa and um, if you want to nail me, you can nail me. 
we see a lot of casting and binding on the TV. And if we're honest with ourselves, most of that is just sham and deception. Because if true darkness comes in the face of Jesus, it has no choice but to tremble. And if it's real, you don't have to portray it on the TV. If a child is truly oppressed, if someone is truly oppressed by the devil, real demon possession, and he comes face to face with Christ, it has no choice but to bow. And so many things that we, we see on the TV and we run to these people and we probably think something is oppressing you. No, have you really come face to face with Christ? Have you truly bowed to Christ? The first collision purity and evil. Now, the second one is of faith and doubt. Verse 23 to, to 24. Just after uh, the boy's father had cried for compassion and for help, in that verse 22, he says, It has often cast him into fire, into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And immediately the father of the boy cried, the child cried out, I believe, help my unbelief. So these are two verses that I think we should pause on and consider. Because the first one is one that we can do with whatever we want. Here Jesus says, if you can, if you believe all things are possible for you, and so we can take that to mean, well, if I believe anything, then it is possible for me. Once I set my mind on something, then it's going to happen. Once I wake up this morning and say, I believe this is going to happen, it is going to happen. Once I claim my healing, it is going to happen. Once I claim that this is gone, it has gone. But as we often encourage ourselves, the context has to guide us here. You see, here, the father is completely distraught. He seems to be a hopeless situation. Jesus was absent. The disciples had failed. The scribes were not helpful either. And here, the boy has been thrown into a panic, into a frenzy right before Jesus. Nothing seems to be going right. The deliverance he needed was almost disappearing. He was at his lowest point. It was Jesus or nothing. You see, the issue here is not how strong his faith was. Because as we go on, we'll see that he had a faith, but it wasn't strong. The real issue here is his object of faith. Was he going to believe Jesus to deliver his son 
or not. There's no question about Jesus' ability. But will he trust him to do this? You see, faith is not, is not faith in anything. True faith. For true faith to be real faith, it has to be trust in someone, in something that is real. What is the object of your faith? And who is the object of your faith? Is it Jesus? Or is it fate? Because a lot of ideas about fate is just fate, believe in belief. Is it trust in Jesus? Is it a trust in the God of the Bible? There is a, a phrase that that goes around. Um, sorry, I can't resist this. There's a, faith, a, a phrase that goes around. Um, or many of us are from Nigeria. What God cannot do does not exist. Thank you. And, you know, we borrowed, some people borrowed that from the visit of the angel to Mary. With God, nothing is impossible. But do you know there are things that God cannot do? God cannot lie. God cannot deny himself. God cannot do something that is contrary to his will. And so when we, you know, throw that phrase, what God cannot do does not exist, it therefore means, you know, no matter what, this, because I'm trusting in God, this is going to happen. I'm not saying you shouldn't trust in God. But we have to be careful. Because some of these lines just, when we now face disappointment, we begin to mistrust God. A lot of false faith comes from a false idea of God. If we're going to have true faith, it has to be in the God that is real, that is living, that is true. Whose plans and purposes will always come to pass. And here, Jesus' plan and purpose was to heal this boy. He was going to heal him. There were other people in Jesus' day who were demon-possessed, who were not healed. So let's be careful about certain things that we will say let us ensure that the things that we say are things that are, that are true. The things that are from God's word. With real understanding of who he is. But going on, we, we have an encouragement here. You see, when Jesus says, if you can, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. The, the, the child's father cries out, I believe. Help my unbelief. You see, here is, a, here is an honest man, one of the most transparent characters 
in the Bible. His faith was trembling. It was imperfect. But it was real. And this, this is a real encouragement for everyone trusting in Christ today. You see, if you are in Christ, as Paul said in Ephesians, if you have been brought into him and you trust him, you have a genuine saving faith from him. You have a real faith, a saving faith. But yet, your faith, if, you, if we're going to be real with ourselves today, your faith experiences challenges. Maybe there is someone here who has a perfect faith. I'm happy for you. But many of us do not live there with you. Our faith experiences challenges. From loss, from grief, from seeming unanswered prayers, from disappointments from fellow Christians, from rejections, the list goes on and on. And this opens doors to emotional doubt. And then somehow we begin to doubt God. Somehow we begin to, to doubt His grace, His love, His mercy. And maybe we project that mistrust that we have for others on God. You see, where we all naturally live is in the place or the realm of unbelief. And so this experiences naturally push us to those places. You see, the cross of Christ is a true picture, is a real place where we should and we can take all our doubts. God nailed our sins on the cross of Christ. And he has promised that everyone who believes in him shall not perish or have eternal life. See, nothing is better than trusting in God. Nothing is better than looking to Jesus always, the author and finisher of our faith. See, our faith is never more strengthened than when we are looking to him. Our faith is never more strengthened when we're on our knees. When we open his word, we see that he is real, he is true. That is where we should take all our doubts to. Not to run from him. To plead just like this boy's father, help my unbelief. Because naturally, we are plagued by unbelief. One of my favorite heroes is, um, as many of my friends here would know, is C.S. Lewis. And um, maybe that would make some English people here happy. Um, but in one of his books, when he lost his, his wife, he wrote a book, um, A Grieve Observed. And it is quite an unusual book. It is just all over the place. But one line there has always stuck with me. In the midst of all he said, 
he came to a point when he said, I need Christ, not something that resembles him. In the midst of the doubts and struggles that he was going on, going on and experiencing. And the truth is, many of us here have recently experienced grief and loss. It is real. And for those of us standing outside observing it, we can't step into it. You know how, how difficult it has been. And maybe it has caused some doubts. It is real. But the truth is, what we all truly need is Christ. And maybe a simple prayer you can pray this morning is, I believe. Help my unbelief. And Christ is willing and ready to help us when we cry out to him. Going on, we see um, Jesus' victory in verse 25 to 27. And when Jesus had, uh, had seen the crowd came, come running to him, and coming, running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Here Jesus rebukes the spirit and shows his power over darkness. And next there is a violent reaction. The spirit looks for a last opportunity to destroy this boy. The boy cries out. He converses. The spirit comes out, and the boy was like a corpse. And most of them said, he is dead. And notice that this begins with the disciples failing. And here it seems that Jesus also had failed. Because it appeared that the boy had died. But what did Jesus do? He took him up by the hand and lifted him up. And he arose. Here's Jesus turning a hopeless situation around. And the gospel is filled with death. Remember the, the boy who was dead, who was being taken out to, to be buried. And Jesus stops them. And he raises the boy and hands him over to his mom. Remember the man who came to Jesus? That his, his daughter was sick. Before they got there, the daughter was dead. Jesus raises, him up, raises her up and gives her to her parents. That is what Jesus does. He turns hopeless situations. Think about the cross. 
They mocked him while he was on the cross. Oh, you saved others. Why can't you save yourself? That same day, he was dead. He was buried. The disciples flee. They were hiding in fear. Oh, this mission has failed. It's all gone. What happens? The third day, he rose again. Your sin might seem so hopeless and dark. But the promise is this. When it comes face to face with the purity of Christ, it is not a hopeless situation. He can turn that around. And he does that countless times. But just as I was telling the the children, you don't just hear the story and go away doing nothing. You have to trust him. It only becomes real when you do trust him. Are you trusting in Jesus? Is he your only hope? Lastly, we have in 28 to, to 29. And the disciples um, come to Jesus indoors. It says when he had entered the house, the disciples asked, asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? Why couldn't we drive it out? Why couldn't we do this? But Jesus says this kind only, can only come out by prayer. Maybe here Jesus is implying that there are degrees of levels of demonic attack in that sense. And so this, this particular one, he says, can only come out. And some version says by prayer and by fasting. You see, I don't think here for a moment that Jesus is saying that the reason why you couldn't do this was because you didn't have a deliverance ministry going on. It wasn't because you didn't have this you know, group of people who are specialized in a deliverance ministry. He's bringing them to the realization that they can do nothing, absolutely nothing, without him. You see, Jesus had sent the disciples out in Mark chapter 6. He had sent them out in verse 7. By two by two, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits. And in verse 13, they had come out, they came back, and they had cast out many demons and anointed many who were sick. He had, they had healed them. And they were thinking, well, you know, we have done that in the past, we can do this. They came back, even the demons were subject to, the, to, to them in Jesus' name. But here they had failed. Their failure was obvious. The scribes were mocking them. The crowd had realized that they had failed. Jesus says, you didn't pray. Well, when is it that you don't pray? When you think you don't need to? When you think, well... I can do this on my own. See, the disciples had forgotten that they had to have the 
a radical dependence on God's power. Jesus was teaching them that faith that brings power is a faith that prays. You see, that is what prayer actually is. It is a total dependence, confessing our total dependence on God. See, it's not just coming to God for stuffs. It is coming to Him and going to Him for deliverance from our deepest condition. It is saying, without you, I fail. It is saying, my faith is weak. Without you, I'm hopeless and a doubting wreck. It is saying, yes, Lord, you can. It is saying, your will will be done. It is saying, you, to you alone belongs the victory and the glory. And think about it, if the disciples could do this without Jesus, then they would take all the glory. But Jesus had to teach them a lesson. He had to humble them that you need me. And maybe a lot of us need to be humbled by God. Let me use the example of what I'm doing now. Preaching. Well, you can think you've had 30, 40, 50 years of experience. I've done this in the past. You know, I can stand here again and do it again. Forgetting that the ultimate success comes from God. I can... I can wow you here with all the big words, all the buzzwords. I can throw them out and nothing will happen. Why? Because I can't. It is only God that can change a person's heart. There are no degrees of deadness. It's only God that can raise the dead. It's only God that can convince you of your sin. It's only God that can show you your real condition. Does that mean I shouldn't pray? No, it actually means I should pray before this and after and during. It means that even as you're coming to church, you have to pray. Because we can just walk in here and say it's a normal Sunday thing. We come religiously, sit down. After two hours, we're gone. Nothing happens. The only reason you can put your legs in your socks is because God keeps you. It is by his grace and mercy that you go to bed every day and wake up. And Jesus had to teach his disciples that without him, they could do nothing. And without Christ, the church can do absolutely nothing. No matter how great the speaker is, no matter how you know, handsome or beautiful whoever is, no matter how great... He might seem to you, if Christ is absent there, absolutely nothing will be done. See, maybe the quality of our faith will be measured by the sense of our prayer. This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Friends, wherever you are this morning, 
I don't know what you've heard or what you have not heard. But I hope God teaches us that it is to Him that we all must come. Maybe your heart is filled with doubts. Maybe it seems hopeless. Maybe you're weak. But come to Jesus. Take it to the Lord in prayer. And maybe that will be a real measure of our faith. Maybe that is where we would experience real deliverance. But we pause here and just um, briefly in our hearts can bow and, and commit all this to God. Lord, thank you for your word. We would pray, Lord, that um, whatever has been only said, Lord, will be forgiven. And today we would only think on what is true, Lord, what you would have each and every one of us think about. Lord, we come to you as we are in prayer, asking, Lord, that you would Reach out to us in our individual situation. Show us our true condition. Show us our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.